Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Today, I'm speaking with Jenna Luce-Thayer. She is the former senior advisor to the U.S. government and the United Nations and is currently assisting institutions and committees to build a humane and rights-based patient-centered response to the global Lyme pandemic. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm very happy to be here with you. Well, I'm excited to have you here. Um, your your book is called Slime, and um, yes, it, I, it, it was a very easy book to read. But I, the information was so important for everybody in this. Not even just dealing with Lyme, but I think in general to understand what you've done and and what's been going on out there. Thank you. Yes, um, I just want to step back and say actually. I um, researched uh, what hap- is happening with the Lyme epidemic, but I want to say that what is happening in terms of a medical response and the uh, health sector globally, Lyme is not the only example of where there are these practices of medical marginalization and human rights abuse. So I just want people to understand we are not the only group that is experiencing this. And um, the Senior Rapporteur for Health Human Rights basically did a major report, a global report, and out of all the sectors globally, that would be tourism, logging, um, you know, retail, et cetera, he found that the most corrupt sector in the world is the healthcare sector. I agree with you. You know, even in my journey before I even knew I had Lyme, I was, you know, it was 14 years of of going to doctors and being told it was all in my head. And I did a show last year with Mia Dusenberry about how women are treated in healthcare. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I think that there needs to be some dramatic restructuring and training in how patients are treated overall, and then some major changes in, in uh, things like what's going on with Lyme. I would agree. There's a so lot ha- of reform needed and there's a lot of corruption and there's a lot of lack of transparency and human rights abuse on a global sector. Unfortunately, or for, uh, the situation is that the most powerful sector globally is the insurance sector. So they have a lot of influence on how medical care is delivered. Uh, one of the top, uh, other most power- one of the other powerful sectors is uh, the pharmaceutical sector. So I don't know if you remember back in the day when big oil and big tobacco ruled, but they had a lot of influence on government policy. So now we're in a time where uh, insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies have a great deal of power, and uh, they are exerting it. Well, you know, we we definitely have all have been aware of that. Now, um, the insurance company issue, everybody is aware of in the States of what goes on there. But is this also a global epidemic in other countries as well? Because I'm in Canada, where it's more of a socialized healthcare system. And there's still a lot of problems here. So how is that influenced over the border? Well, it's interesting, because 
um, uh, nations that have um, national health services, those are actually insurance systems. So when we talk about insurance, we're talking both private insurance and we're talking about government insurance. But these systems are the same in practice. And um, the other thing I wanted to say is that Canada is very much under the influence of policies in the United States. So what you see in the United States, you often see in Canada. But like I said, even though it's a national health care system, the practices are very similar to what you find in a private health care system. So it's, it's, you should never confuse the two to think that one is operating separately than the other. In fact, uh, the governments typically contract out a lot of the middlemen that, pra- that do the national health care practices and, and supports for, for people in Canada. Um, so that's one reason why uh, you, you see similar issues. So how did you start to get involved in Lyme advocacy? Well, like so many of us, I was recruited by a tick. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm I not think this sure is how, how it goes. You it. have to be affected huh? to know it's a problem. Excuse me? I, I think this is what happens. You have to be affected by Lyme to know that it's a problem in the healthcare system. Yes, I would say that it opens your eyes to just how problematic the healthcare system is, although I did have previous experience with it, but nothing where um, I saw such rampant medical marginalization, you know. Um, but I want to say that I may have had con- may have congenital Lyme, and I say that because my mother is from an area of the United States where all of my cousins have Lyme disease, and they were born with it. Uh, however, uh, my first active case was when I was 16, and um, I was an athlete, and I was a, actually I was a professional ballerina. And... Um, I uh, I never saw a bullseye rash, but I developed a Bell's palsy, and I had um, severe joint pain and severe fatigue for three months, and then it seemed to pass. Well, it did pass. I was young, and I was healthy, robust immune system. And then um, in my 30s, I was doing a lot of global travel, as you may know. I also lived overseas, but at that time it really escalated because my jobs required that I travel to multiple countries uh, on an annual basis. For example, when I was a senior advisor to the United Nations, I covered 40 countries, and I was traveling 70% of the time. So this was a major stress on my health. Now, it was very exciting. I was young. I was happy to do the job, but it was really overwhelming in terms of my health. And I remember complaining to my boss, and I said, listen, uh, you know, I cannot be traveling this much. <laughs> it's not good for me. And um, I was the only woman to be a senior technical advisor. I was the first one to be a senior technical advisor. So they were very um, uh, happy to have me go about and, you know, kind of be the senior, the woman who was a senior technical advisor and show everybody how progressive there was, that was. And uh, my male colleagues only traveled 30% of the time. So... Um, my health was uh, stre- being stretched a lot. I'm very health conscious. I eat well. I exercise every day. But when you're traveling like that, it is impossible to maintain a good uh, sleeping pattern. And I was also traveling between the de- developing, co- developing countries and third world countries, and I was crossing time zones. So I would maybe go out to Mozambique, 
and then they'd say, we want, um, that's in the east coast of Africa, then they'd say, okay, instead of coming back to New York, go over to Haiti, which is in the Caribbean. And then I'd think, okay, I'm going to go home now, and then I would be told, no, no, you have to go to China. <laughs> so I was just crossing all the time zones constantly. And I also um, had the misfortune of having, um, you know, going into a healthcare center at the UN, uh, not the UN, but another one, and I was due for some shots. And you know, you can you can get vaccines. That's a it's a uh, risk benefit analysis. But uh, you know, they always disturb your immune system, and you should not have a whole bunch at the same time. And I was not entirely aware of this, so. Um, I went in, and the uh, nurse practitioner said, actually, the doctor said, looks like, a, okay, you have two shots due, but you have three due um, in about four or five months, so why don't we just give you all five today? <laughs> <laughs> and that made my, let's just say there was a lot of, uh, my body started spinning a lot after, you know, and it, my Lyme really got active at that time. I started having a lot of fatigue, joint pain. My neck was always hurting, um, I was having, you know, I thought, I was told, I was, I complained about cognitive stuff, and the, and the doctor said, oh, it's just because you are in jet lag. And I was like, I don't know, other people have this problem in jet lag. And um, so between my travel schedule and my fatigue and my, I mean, I loved my job, but there just seemed to be no way to negotiate a more uh, balanced lifestyle with them. So even though I was in a very prestigious job and I was the first woman to have this job, I just said, you know, there has to be another way. And at, at 40 year, 39 years old, I was also the youngest, woman, youngest person to be a senior technical advisor. So the youngest person and the first woman. I t- went to my boss and I said, I'm sorry, I'm resigning. Mm. <laughs> he was like, what? I said, yeah, I, I just can't do this. I've told you multiple times this is not, you know, unsustainable and I so when you when you were looking for what was going on did you have problems um, with the healthcare system to try to figure out what was causing all of these symptoms well at that time the symptoms weren't significant they were just fatigue and they seemed to be you know fit with a travel schedule and the neck pain and everything like that just seems like you know you're sitting in a plane you know you have a stressful lifestyle I didn't have anything significant yet, but I didn't like the way I was feeling. I knew there was something wrong, and I said, you know, my, my work system was unsustainable. I wasn't going to do it anymore. Um, so I resigned, and I started consulting, which was much better. I had built a good, you know, resume, and a lot of people knew me, and so I could consult, and that allowed me to take a lot more downtime and, you know, manage my life and take a lot of beach. I moved to Florida. My grandmother... Uh, moved to Florida when she was 70, and she's in upstate New York. And when I was 19 years old, I borrowed her Pontiac Ventura, and it's a big old boat of a car, and I drove south down the coastal um, roads of, of Florida. And um, as I went down, I went over this bridge from the mainland over to the ocean, and it was the most beautiful setting I'd ever seen for me, and I've traveled the world and I just said, I'm, someday I'm going to live here. I just decided that's it. So when I was 39, that's what I did. I moved down there. 
<laughs> well, so w- one of the, the big issues that a lot of Lyme patients have, and this is what you're trying to address, um, is that they cannot get help from the medical community. You know, it, it's it's very common. Um, Canada seems to be a little worse. I was just in, um, in New Jersey for a Lyme conference, and at least people can get a little bit more recognition. Here, we can't get testing. Um, we're told Lyme doesn't even exist. Doctors don't even believe in it existing at all, not even in an acute aspect. Um, and, you know, uh, patients are, are, you know, as sick as you are sicker, um, you know, are, are leaving their jobs the same way and then not able to get any help at all. Yes. And it's interesting. I'm going to talk about the ICD codes, but I just want to tell you that after I moved to Florida, my health completely unraveled. By the time I was um, in my mid-40s, I was completely debilitated. So I did completely crash. Uh, I was systemic. I cognitive, you know, the whole, comp- every possible complication, and I was unable to work at all. But anyway, to get back to the um, system in, in Canada and other countries and the United States, this is where the ICD codes come in. Now, the International Classification of Diseases is a, a system of medical coding that's set up by the United Nations with the participation of every nation in the world. And what's very interesting, so basically when you go to the doctor, there's a medical code that they assign to your illness, and that determines your care. Now, what's very interesting in Canada is that you go to the doctor, and they write down what you have, and then it goes to your province, and there are people at the provincial level who assign it a code. So the doctor has nothing to do in Canada with assigning the code. And in Canada, they only use one code for Lyme. So they recognize absolutely no complication from Lyme. Now, this is really important because um, in, we were working on the, the, the team I worked with that was working on the ICD codes. At this point in time, there are four different complications from, from Lyme have been recognized for 20 years. Um, and this is not our work. This has been existing. And in Canada, they only recognize acute Lyme infection. So they don't even have the codes that everybody else has to recognize this, this illness. Um, and that means there's no research following it. That means there's no recognition by the, by the government that there's happening, which means, of course, doctors have no idea the, the, the breadth of the epidemic in Canada. So in terms of why is this happening to patients? Well, if you have basically a nationwide system through the ICD code saying it's not a problem because it's not being registered at the provincial and national level, it's reinforcing a myth and misinformation about the situation in Canada. Now, um, the ICD codes in the United States have these four, compl- four complications, acute, systemic, Late. I mean, some basic things like that. Nowhere what we need, but at least there's a possibility you might be, you know, uh, recognized. So this is a very systemic, uh, pro- systemic way in which um, illness, our illness, is recognized or not, or, re- or not recognized. Um, and this is not only in Canada and the United States, but it's global. So again, you know, we are going around in our country. We think we have a unique system, but in fact. What we're experiencing is what every other nation and people in other nations are experiencing regarding Lyme disease. 
Um, yeah, and I, I want to talk about this more. We are going to take a quick break. We're talking today sure. with, with Jenna Luce Thayer, and uh, we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Jenna Luce Thayer. We're discussing her book Slime, and the essence slime is a dollar sign. Um, and this is about how medically corrupt the um, lime is in the medical community. Um, so, it, Jenna, you know, you you were de- describing to us about the medical codes, and um, you know, with not having a lot of medical codes for Lyme, what did that mean for patients who were suffering with illness or are? Well, if you do not have an ICD code for any illness, it means that it's going to be very hard for that illness to be recognized. Period. Now, in Canada. The doctor would just describe what the illness is, and then it goes to the provincial um, area, provincial level, and somebody who doesn't even know you assigns a code. So there's no interaction between the doctor and the coder. So the doctor might say it's one thing, and the coder might not even agree. And in the case in Canada, like I said, there's only one code for Lyme, and it's only for the acute early version. So... In other countries, at least there's a couple different codes for Lyme. They're very minor. 
They don't recognize carditis. They don't recognize dementia. They don't recognize, you know, any of these other major life-threatening uh, con- complications. Um, but um, Canada is pretty strapped in terms of that. So what it means is that you have a whole system working against you to have your illness recognized and also to be reimbursed or to have it covered for your medical care. Now, in the United States and other countries, it's a little bit more fortunate, but it's still extremely lacking. So as you said, slime, that's the word slime, refers to the corruption. Now, my um, technical expertise is transparency, which is the very polite way of polite way of saying corruption, and my other or anti-corruption, and my other area of expertise is human rights. And uh, for years, I concentrated on the most marginalized people in the world. I have over uh, 33 years doing this, and I worked in 40 countries. And um, uh, a great deal of my work was on the rights of women because globally, uh, women are the most marginalized group as, as, a, as a gender. Um, but I've also worked with many other marginalized groups, and I've also been working a lot with the violence, violence of, of, of marginalization, and uh, this means actually gross, uh, severe human rights abuses. So when I uh, was so sick, and this went on for many years, it took many years for me to diagnose, I was diagnosed. So here I am sick completely debilitated, and at 52, I finally get a diagnosis. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. I can, and, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was terrible. And, and what's so interesting is that um, one of my friends, a, a childhood friend, I, she had been very sick with Lyme disease. She almost died from it. I mean, really almost died. This was many years back, and she's a medical professional. She's from Johns Hopkins. Um, they had done, um, they had tested her because she had had a summer flu and uh, they never told her that she tested positive for Lyme. And so 10 years later, she almost died from it. And they never even checked to see it was buried in her files. But anyway, I went to visit her when, I, when she was so sick and, and I learned a bit about Lyme, but not enough. Uh, like she didn't, she didn't give me information about it. So as a, globe, as a global traveler, I used uh, the CDC as my reference point to protect my health. You know, I'd go into areas of, uh, with a lot of uh, malaria, hantavirus, tuberculosis, drug-resistant tuberculosis, you know, cholera, dengue fever, you know, malaria. I mean, you know, just all these illnesses. So I have to, do, I have to take care of myself and protect myself. So I've known about Lyme since the, since the 80s. I've known about it since the 80s because I was living in Vermont. And I know some people were quite sick with it, but I thought it was like a one-off. And I didn't realize how many people got really sick with it. And I also didn't know that these sick people weren't getting better. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm an outdoor person. Uh, I, you know, hike. I swim. I, you know, <laughs> I like to play outside. I, 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 I garden. I have, I've worked on farms. I work with farm animals. I work, I have animal companions like dogs. I'm a really outdoor person. Uh, I've pulled ticks off my life, off my, off myself my whole life. I've never really been that worried about ticks because I didn't know how, how dangerous they were as a vector for disease. Um, so, uh, 
maybe just to say that the CDC has given a great deal of misinformation and the policies of the CDC, because they are so um, non-informative, are driving a gross human rights violation as well as um, they are based on a, on, a, on a significant amount of corruption that involves patented uh, interests with regards to Lyme products. So we have over 200 patents that are tied to the CDC and their affiliates um, that are basically driving Lyme policy to personally profit institutions and individuals. And these patents are based on a lot of science that is inaccurate. So here we are, and a poor patient um, sitting around trying to get help, and these dirty patents are, are earning income from people for people, and they don't want this to change. And in the United States, we also have a, a political complication in that our um, democracy. Uh, you know, the people who are supposed to represent Americans who we elect into office are allowed to get huge comp, uh, campaign co contributions. So many, you know, people who are running for office take campaign contributions from pharmaceutical companies and from insurance companies, and so they tend to represent their interests and not the interests of their average person who looks to them to help take care of problems um, in the United States. So we have a real systemic issue here. We have a lack of transparency. We have corruption. In the United States, we have people who are not doing a good job of representing our concerns. Um, and uh, it's a very big and complex thing. It seems very hard to, 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 to get a handle on. But in fact, there are many people now who are aware of this, and there are you know, institutions who are trying to make changes in this, and there has to be a grassroots movement to make these changes because these institutions are not very powerful compared to the huge powers in place that are globally organized. And I want to mention that about how they are globally organized. For example, a lot of doctors depend upon a, a, a drop-down system called UpToDate, and they refer to it when they're kind of looking for information on what the patient might be sick with. Well, up-to-date is in 150 countries, and up-to-date is also spreading misinformation about Lyme disease. So <laughs> they're kind of being all this, all this basically scientific fraud is being reinforced globally on a, on a daily basis. And then you have all these medical societies across the globe that are linked, you know, uh, through uh, cyberspace and all these uh, telecommunications, and they meet with each other, and they are reinforcing many of these bad, um, very these very bad uh, practices and bad bad information. So you know we we know the organizations that are trying to help, but they are very small compared to the, all the ones that are you know trying to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have the, the way they are. Excuse me. <laughs> Um, you know, one one thing that um, I always get asked because we we're very aware of what's happening in the states. There's a lot of there's the documentary under our skin, and there's a lot of books and information. But when this becomes a global issue, how does how does this these tentacles reach out to affect other countries with this corruption? Well, as I said, you know, there are these 
most of most of the medical um, systems now, like up to date, it's uh, it's a medical advisory, you know, thing for doctors across the globe. They are reinforcing the same information. And when you look at who is the advisor on Lyme disease, it's Alan Steer. <laughs> you know, so they're just kind of reinforcing it. I call them greed vectors. These 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 institutional systems. They're greed vector, you know, slime vectors. Uh, so, um, so we're kind of in a web, in a web of scientific fraud and corruption and human rights abuse. And I want to talk about the human rights abuse because a lot of times people don't realize that the nature of what uh, people with Lyme are experiencing, you know, mm-hmm. the ones who are medically marginalized and the ones who have not gotten good care and the ones who have been told there's nothing wrong with them, these qualify as gross human rights abuse. So that means, you know, they're not, we're, we are, as we, we have talked about people being medically executed through these practices. Um, so um, first I just want to talk about who Alan Steer is, just so that people can oh, understand yeah. um, why that's affecting other countries. Well, Alan Steer is one of the people who was instrumental in kind of defining how Lyme disease is perceived and he still has a great deal of influence, and, you know, he's resistant. He appears to be very resistant to, to changing his views. Um, mm-hmm. And because he's one of the earliest people to discover it, um, and he's well-placed in, in academia, and he's connected into the medical societies, um, and he gets a lot of grant money, so that, rep, that influences the people who are working for him. It influences the students who are working under him, you know, he has a lot of people who are, who are being mentored and, and taught by him. So it's just kind of like a churning, uh, you know, output of the same old, same old um, mm-hmm. with Alan Steer. And he, like I said, he has shown no interest whatsoever in changing um, his views on this, even though we have hundreds and hundreds of uh, peer-reviewed publications and research showing that Lyme disease is a systemic, life, uh, life-threatening illness if it is not treated properly and we know that many people do not get better with the current um, treatments available to them. You know, many of them are, 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 there are those of us like myself who for, even though I was completely debilitated and I had, you know, all these serious significant symptoms, cardiac disruption and um, severe neurological problems, um, endocrine problems, uh, uh, you name it. I mean, I just had so many problems. I was, like I said, completely debilitated. But for whatever reason, I did respond to six months of treatment and have been in functional remission for seven years. So Congratulations. I, uh, I, huh? Excuse me? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I feel that with that, that experience, given what I know, my professional knowledge and my personal experience with this, I said, I have to do something about it. I, have, I can't walk away from this. Just because I'm feeling better doesn't mean I'm going to just walk away and say, I'm glad about that, you know, it's over. I have to do something about this, you know. And um, just a side note, my husband is from Old Lyme, Connecticut. And he has been sick with this in his entire life. Again, a more gradual process. Um, but uh, he was looking into getting disability earlier this year. And he's somebody who has not responded so well to the 
treatment options that are available. He has run um, the treatment options that are available through International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, uh, Medical Society, and he has done, you know, he's had periods of, of remission and then relapse, remission and then relapse, and even his remission has been fairly low quality. So he has had a great deal of suffering, and he is from old Lyme. He has had classic symptoms. He lived in old Lyme. They never once checked to see if he had Lyme disease. And, you know, he's one of these people who has had a good life, and he has never considered questioning the medical society, the medical care system. He had no idea when he was going to them that there was all this scientific fraud, you know, and, and he just had no idea that somebody wouldn't take care of him, okay, in the right way because it was mm-hmm. not his experience. He's a baby. <laughs> well, and I he think no that's idea. a common he had reaction. no idea this was the is, case, is, you know? You know, to be let Excuse down me? by your doctors for the first time when you have something that isn't recognized by the system and you're very sick and, you know, you're told that it's in your head. This is a common life oh, story. Well, and that's the interesting thing because I was always, as a female, I was always being told it was in my head. Um, I mean, you're kidding me. I was having, you know, I was having partial seizures, and I was told it was in my head, you know. I was having yep. severe cardiac, dis- you know, disruption, all the stuff. I was told it was in my head. It was stress. I had uh, all these things going on, and I'd go, and I'd talk to the doctor, and I was very healthy prior to that. So it's like you could just see a significant shift in my health. I was much health- sicker than my husband when we got our diagnosis, but I recovered better. Um, so not only did they say it's all in your head and, you know, maybe you can't handle stress, which I found very insulting. I mean, here I am, a very competent person who has managed a very complicated global life, saying suddenly mm-hmm. I can't handle stress. I was like, yeah. what is this? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And then yes. they would ask me things like, how is your relationship with your husband? Are you getting along with him? And I would say, yeah. oh, yeah, I get along seizures, fine because right? I'm sleeping all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I, I think this is this is why I, I do shows like this to, to bring this information uh, forward to people of, of what's actually going on out there. A lot of patients come to me and, and they're in that situation that you and your husband were in for the first time often. And, um, you know, they're baffled that they can't get help and that they're treated this way. And um, this is, you know, why you have stepped forward to to help us in these situations and and we are going to take a quick break but when we come back I want to talk about how this is actually a human rights violation um, because it's not something that I've ever thought of before so Mm -hmm. um, yeah we're going to be back shortly we're talking with uh, Jenna Luce Thayer and we're discussing her book Slime we'll be back shortly Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. We're on the pulse of the world with great shows and hosts. The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel is also on Twitter. We've got ideas to keep you healthy, breaking health news, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Voice AM Health. That's at Voice AM Health. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back today. I'm speaking with Jenna Luce Thayer, and we're discussing her book, Slime. And it's spelt with a dollar sign and then L-Y-M-E, and it's about the corruption um, around Lyme disease. So, Jenna, one, I, I want you to explain to, to us how we're, Lyme patients are treated and how this is a violation of our human rights. Okay. Well, there are many human rights that are violated uh, 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 with regard to Lyme patients. When I did my research on a global scale to look at what the human rights are, I'm very familiar with them. This is part of what I've done professionally. I do assessments on what kinds of human rights are being violated and under what circumstances. And globally, there are many different treaties um, that protect the rights of, hum- of, of us. And what I found is... You know, there's not that many. There's about 20 or so. And when I did the research, I found that with regards to Lyme disease, um, well, more than more than 20, but there's there's around that amount. Um, I found that uh, Lyme patients qualified to be violated against 14 different. I'm sorry, 11 different human rights treaties, which is very significant globally. Mm-hmm. So 14 out of a little bit over 20, uh, there's violation, okay? And then um, on top of that, we have different articles of human rights violations. And we, within those, we have 14 gross human, vi- human rights violations with regards to Lyme patients. So they fall in the category of, for example, the right to life, you have, we all have a right to life, and that right is being denied because of denial of medical care. That's a human rights abuse. Mm-hmm. We all have the right to the best, the highest attainable standard of health. This is being denied, another human rights abuse. We all have the right to um, um, medical choices, you know, the right to choose for medical care. This is tied indirectly to human rights, and that's a human rights abuse if it's not being allowed, if it's being obstructed. 
uh, we all have a right to personal security, which means our, 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 personal care, our personal security and our right to living in this world, if that's being interfered with because of a system that is undermining it, that's a human rights abuse. Um, and and these, uh, these are just some examples, but for example, with regards to a right to life, um, you know, uh, well, with regards to personal security, we have uh, children being seized by government institutions and their contractors because their parents are treating them for Lyme disease, and they're being basically incarcerated in psychiatric institutions and being forced to take psychiatric drugs, which are not even what they need. So that's a gross human rights abuse. It's considered very violent. Um, well, in fact, huh? Well, one of the stories in, in your book that you tell is of someone who can't get coverage by his insurance for his antibiotics for Lyme, but they tell him that euthanasia would be covered for him. Oh, yeah. Isn't it believable? It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, it's just, yeah, just shocking that that nice would be man. the option. When all yeah, he needs is some antibiotics. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's hear. just it's just shocking that that that's the option that the insurance company would offer in writing when all he needs is antibiotics. Yeah, and um, you know he's a very young, nice young man. He's only in his 30s, and they're offering him euthanasia. Yeah, and um, what's shocking is that. Uh, this is a policy um, or a practice, a possible practice. It's practice already in Holland, in Sweden, mm-hmm. in Denmark, Canada, in Finland. You know, mm-hmm. they're offering euthanasia for people who are chronically ill with Lyme disease. So when you found these human rights violations, you took this to the World Health Organization. And what was the outcome of this? Well, let me first talk about how that happened. I met Dr. Ken Lagner, who's a member of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases um, Society, at a conference. And um, I just, um, he's a remarkable man. And we became friends and we started a conversation. And um, he was kind of, you know, letting me know how, you know, the frustrations of trying to treat Lyme patients in terms of the system and we were talking and this and that, and then we got around somehow to talk about medical codes, and that was my aha moment. Because I know from being in the UN system that these medical codes are, are, are international. And um, Ken has been working as a, as a Lyme advocate and professional uh, medical practitioner for many, many years, over 40. And he actually speaks about human rights abuse in a, in a speech that he gave uh, some years back. But basically... Because he's so well-connected in, in this uh, Lyme world, I said, you know, Ken, I think I could actually put together an international committee that would go to the United Nations because we have to have international representation um, and, and speak to the most highest levels at the human rights um, branch of the United Nations. And um, because he was connected, he you know, introduced me to a number of people, and I basically got a group together representing over 26 countries, mostly medical professionals, but we also have human rights people, lawyers, um, some advocates, et cetera. We have veterinarians, you know. 
we have representation from Africa, from uh, Northern Europe, from Western Europe, from Canada, United States, from Australia, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a bit, it was a very, very prestigious and very, you know, a comprehensive big group. I'm not, it's a big group actually. It's very big. It formed very, mm-hmm. very quickly. It was like fly. It was like it was like bees to honey. You know, it just uh, <laughs> it formed Good. very, very fast, huh? That, that's great. I love that. Yeah, it was it was time. It was time for it to happen. And we put together some very comprehensive reports. And you have to you have to send a report to these people and uh, these UN rapporteurs, and they get thousands and thousands and thousands of people requesting audience with them. And in this case, we got an immediate response the next day. They said, come in and meet with us, which is very remarkable. Mm-hmm. So, excuse me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was remarkable. They literally got a meeting the next day. I mean, not a meeting. They actually said, yes, we will meet with you. So, of course, we couldn't have the entire group assembled because, first of all, it's very costly. Nobody's getting paid to do this work, including myself, and not everybody was available. But we did have a good representation, and we went to Geneva the first time and met with the special rapporteur uh, for health human rights, which was Danius Puris, and he's the one who wrote the report about the corruption in healthcare across the globe. And he listened. He was very interested. Um, you know, we spoke to all of these issues, um, and he was very impressed, of course, with uh, <laughs> some of our, our doctors because they're very well-known, you know, you know, they're very well known. So, um, so he paid attention and he told us what we could do. They're not in a position to, they do not have the authority to make change, but what they do is they facilitate and, and help you to get into the highest levels of, you know, government and political systems in order to gain the ear of people. So he did help with that. And then we also had all of the people who were in the team continuing to work. And then, of course, we had a game plan in order to change the codes itself. And because I know the U.N. system, I worked my way deeply into it. Um, and we actually had a Canadian uh, uh, researcher by the name of Vet Lloyd who um, put together a, um, a team of, uh, of graduate students and another Canadian who lives in Finland who put together a team of graduate students. Her name is Leona um, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on her last name right now, uh, Leona Gilbert, and they, working with me, went into a digital platform that the UN has for creating the codes where everybody puts in suggestions and says this is how the disease should be described and this is what we want to see. And we basically put in hundreds and hundreds of references and a request that multiple complications uh, from Lyme disease be recognized with codes. And so I'm happy to say that as a result of our work, um, we now have codes for the next round, which will be happening very soon, that increase by 400% from the previous codes, um, and they recognize dementia from Lyme disease, demyelinating conditions from Lyme disease, carditis, um, uh, and other very severe complications, and those complications are actually life-threatening. So it was a, a, a change that has, taken, has not happened in over 25 years. So basically, the codes were the codes, the code recognized, you know, a very simple disease, easy to, easy to, hard to catch, 
easy to cure. You know, not a mm-hmm. the Nauticodes are telling the world that you can die from this disease. That's the message now. That's a very, very important shift. The codes for Lyme disease now telling people you can die from this illness, which means governments, because the codes are going to help inform government policy because of all the data collection, they are going to hear about the death from the potential death from Lyme disease. That means the patients can go in knowing the codes and say, look it, I think I have this. Here's a medical code for this. I want this to be on my record. I want treatment. I want this to be considered seriously and negotiate with their doctor and even try to negotiate maybe with their healthcare system, although that's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a complete change from decades of how this disease has been recognized on a global scale. It's a major breakthrough. But, of course, it's not enough. You know, just because there's something in place that's supposed to work, that doesn't mean systems always work. The patient, the patient's family and friends, everybody has to know about these codes, and they have to go in armed with the information so that they can inform their doctor and that they can inform their health, their health insurance system. Um, well, and you have, excuse me? Well, I was just going to ask, what what is happening now that these codes are in place for patients? Is it a slow trickle where there's change, or is there still a lot of resistance? Well, it's, it's you know, we're, we're talking about a major bureaucratic change with the codes. So it, um, the codes were developed over seven-year process, and they're going into vote uh, in early May to be finalized. And then there's, there's the installation of the codes themselves. So that's a couple years. But the point is that because the World Health Organization has already recognized them, we don't have to wait for the codes to be in place to, in order to get the change. We can basically say these are the codes coming, so these are conditions have been validated by the only, uh, you know, only institution that, is, that, has, been, that has been formed for global health. Uh, institution for that the World Health Organization has validated these codes. So even though they're not there yet, that doesn't mean we pretend that these conditions don't work. It's very powerful to have the World Health Organization recognize an illness. You see? So, because so the World as Health a patient, Organization, as a, excuse me? As a patient with Lyme um, in Canada, would I be able to go to my doctor now, even though Canada is only recognizing acute Lyme, and give them a list of the of the codes from the WHO and say, this is recognized, you have to treat me? Well, um, actually, the book, has, I have to, the book has, has, has to be a little bit updated, Lyme, if there's been some changes, but yeah, you could do that. I mean, you could basically say, hey, look at. These codes, um, these codes recognize all these complications, and I, it's, you know, I want treatment for this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. You have to negotiate because when you have the validation of the World Health Organization, that's a powerful institution, you know, to say uh, these illnesses, these complications exist. Don't expect your doctor to know automatically. Don't expect your public health system to know. But just go and say, look, at, I have the backing of the World Health Organization, and I expect some support and some care. 
Um, it, well, this this is really powerful because uh, in the past, um, I've always had to explain to people that the governing body is telling doctors that this chronic Lyme isn't really a thing here. It, we, we have law protecting chronic Lyme, but it's being denied that it exists where we are or anywhere. And um, so to tell for you as a patient to tell your doctor that their governing body is wrong is very, very difficult because you're just this person that walked in the door and you're you're not the governing body you're not the doctor but now that we have these codes that gives you as a patient more power to go in and say this other governing body is saying that that what I'm saying and what I'm experiencing is real which gives you more power to get taken seriously instead of uh, of you know this is all in your head get out of my office yeah and the other thing is I mean I try to be very careful when I'm you know I, I get angry and I, I speak fairly uh, uh, colorfully about this illness and how how people are being treated. But when I'm talking to doctors and bureaucrats and all that, I, I tend to use the language of this has been updated. <laughs> this is yes. updated as opposed to being wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's very polite of you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you yeah, it kind of wrong to because, so. you know, yeah. You're, you're going to get a lot of resistance if you go in there and yeah. make demands, right? You have to negotiate. Yeah. you got to get support. You know, you have to build relationships. All these things that are happening are happening really on a grassroots level, you know? Yeah. Uh, my treatment yeah. was not, not taken care of by a major um, medical institution. It was taken care of by uh, a, rural far- a rural medical center up in Tennessee by a nurse practitioner. A nurse practitioner, I went in and I said, you know, I have Lyme disease and nobody will, I can't get care. And um, she said, well, I've known you for years, Jen. I've seen your, your health unraveling. And um, I actually have a niece that got really sick with this, so I'm going to get you treatment. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We had a personal right. connection, in other words. And she was willing to, to treat me. Yeah. Extended uh, for six months, even though it was not what the CDC recommended. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, I could, I, I'm going to say this all month because I'm talking to um, everybody in, in May is about Lyme disease, and I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately, yeah. they only give me an hour, so no. Um, um, but um, thank you so much for, for everything that you have done for all of us with Lyme. This is going to be very groundbreaking for, for everybody, and especially as you continue to do more work. It, it's I, I, I can see that this is going to be slow because I know how the system is but but this is going to give patients more power to get the help that they need which is re- very amazing um, so I want to thank you so much for doing all of this Rebecca can I take one minute to talk about yeah. disulfiram sure. disulfiram is a drug um, that is, no, is known as anabuse it's been around for 70 years it was discovered to be very effective in killing the Lyme uh, infection um, it's a generic drug, so it's very affordable. Um, it, it's being used to treat malaria, which means it can kill, it probably will be killing Babesia, and it kills uh, viruses. It's being used to treat HIV-AIDS. So this drug um, is showing great potential to treat this illness, and it's very affordable. And I know more and more people who are taking this drug. It's about a three-month, uh, 12-week um treatment or six-week or eight-week treatment, depending on your infection. 
in the United States, even a generic drug is expen- is not as a, is more less so, expensive in the United States than so Canada. So, Jenna, I'm I'm really sorry to cut you off. I do okay. know that I'll be talking about this drug more with Brian Fallon later in the month. So, thank you for mentioning right. it, and and thank you so much for for joining me today. Oh, you're um, welcome. I, I sorry, we ran out of time. I should have. Yeah, that's uh, all right. Yeah, that's all right. We're going to get into that more this month. So, so thank you for everything that you've done, you're and welcome. and thank you so, so much. It's so nice for, to meet you. Yeah, thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening today. We're talking today with Jenna Luce Thayer. Um, Just be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.